This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Linda. And I'm Jane. And we have a brand new podcast called Bedknobs and Broom Flicks, where we talk about witches of the entertainment world. From the horror movies Warlock, Suspiria, The Witch, and The Blair Witch Project. To the more comedic or whimsical, such as Harry Potter, Hocus Pocus, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and The Blair Witch Project. No movie, TV show, or book is off limits. All witches, man witches, sorry warlocks, we're not calling you that, witches brews, witches of history, familiars, and witch-like activity will be discussed as we laugh and have fun talking about the wonderful world of witches. So join us every other week for some fun witchy talk. All witches welcome. This podcast involves topics such as violence, sex, and mental illness. If this might disturb you or those around you, please reconsider. It's okay. Privacy and confidentiality has been protected, and personal information removed when possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis center, emergency services, or national hotline. In the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. You matter. Hey, this is Kate. Back in September of 2019, I talked to Danny from the Wheel Weaves podcast. She works in a psychiatric inpatient facility as part of the education program. And so she's familiar with like the sort of high need crisis intensity end of a bunch of different challenges that kids might face, including reactive attachment disorder, which happens to be what my youngest kiddo, Danielle, struggles with. Now, I want to start this off by saying that Danielle is doing really, really well. I mean, compared to where she was just a couple of years ago, I'm a lot more optimistic than I was once upon a time. I'm less fearful for her safety. I'm less constantly exhausted and frustrated by thinking about what to do next and how to try to convince her teachers to pay attention. And this may be because the teachers in the school have figured us out and gotten everybody on board, but I think it's mostly because Danielle is just doing well. Kids are resilient little critters. That being said, this is always going to be there. It's always going to be a challenge for her. And so it's sort of always within my my consciousness at some level. So I talked to Jen from 
Wander and part of the Boston Harbor Horror Team and a couple of other projects. And we didn't know what we were going to talk about because we never do. So what you're about to hear is like 45 or so minutes into the conversation. And I decided to just clip it to start here because I wanted to stay a little more focused than where we went earlier in the talk. Because it turns out that she and I have plenty in common, including the fact that her son also has reactive attachment disorder. When Danny from the Wheel Weaves and I talked about it, it was from this sort of differing perspectives of I'm coming in as parent, she's coming in as teacher. And in this one, it's two moms talking about some of the stresses that every parent has all the time. Not all that creative, not all that inventive. It's just what parenting do, man. It's, it, it just is. And also the extra level, the other challenges that our kids face and therefore we do. And I make a comment toward the very end how any deviation from normal is tough on a kid. And I really believe that. Like, some of us may choose to want to stand out in our different ways, but by choice, right? And, and when what makes you different is something you don't have control over because you're either born with it or you develop it early in life or there's an accident or there's a trauma or whatever the situation, that's harder to deal with. And it can, it's not necessarily bad. Like, I want to be clear. Like, I think it's harder to deal with artistic talent. It's harder to deal with being gay. It's harder to deal with being really smart like a lot of stuff, usually we can find benefits within. And I think that we can do that here as well. But it's still just any moving away from the center of that normal curve can be a challenge for the kids and for the parents. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss. When people look at you and they're like, oh, I admire you so much for being a teenage mom. I, it's the same reaction you just had. I do what I do. I do what I need to do. You just you just do, mm-hmm. you know, and you I, make it work. I, I, I feel like that's a lot of parenting. Yeah, that's a lot of parenting. And, and so there's something to me about like people who are older when they have their children, I think the, their kids pick up on the adjustments that they have to go through. Yeah. 
yeah, as because... parents. And I think the kids pick that up. And that even starts before you become physical parents. Um, as soon as, like, there's a blood connection between what's inside of you and what's happening externally, the bond starts there. So if you're stressed during pregnancy, that that child feels it. So if you're trying to adjust and you're trying to... You, you know, some people mentally freak out. Some people know which way they're going to go. But if you're mentally freaking out, that child's going to feel it. Like, I went through a lot of stress with my son's pregnancy. And um, he actually has a condition that's not common with um, biological families. He has uh, disinhibited reactive attachment disorder. Okay, so we can talk a whole lot about that. Oh, we can talk a whole my, lot my about daughter, a lot of my stuff. Youngest. My 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 youngest has disinhibited type reactive attachment disorder, which is not commonly seen, as you know, outside of you know Eastern European orphanages. Mm-hmm. Um, that, Most... uh, you know, it basically, it's it's comparable in a lot of ways for people who are listening. It's comparable to like autism in some sense, like a difficulty forming connections with people or or sort of understanding social cues and social boundaries. Um, the inhibited type, there's two, inhibited and disinhibited. And the inhibited type are kids who, that's easier to see. It's sort of like with ADHD, where there's the hyperact, they, they, they call it hyperactive type versus um, inattentive type, but really they're basically the same thing. It's just how it sort of appears on the outside, right? And so with reactive attachment disorder, you get the inhibited type or the disinhibited. And the inhibited type are the kids who you give them a hug and they punch you in the face because they don't know how to cope with affection. They don't know how to cope with this emotional flood. It, it, it makes them feel uncomfortable or confused or just overwhelmed and they punch back. The disinhibited type are the kind the kids who show like either no affection at all or like way too much. Like they don't know how to stop. Yep. And he definitely has his days. There are some, and even moments throughout the day, there are some days where he's overly affectionate. And then there are other days where he's just cold and distant. And then there are days where he's both and you never know which one you're going to get. Um, and it can get quite scary. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, with, with Danielle, she, she goes, we call it stone face where she just, she just goes flat and, and sometimes it's because she's being spoken to. Like, we don't hit in our house. We don't spank. Like, I, I totally reserve the right to. Because if my kid's going to ride in the run in the road, I would rather whack him on the ass than have him get hit by a car. So, like, it's happened. It's just on most, for the most part, like, she, especially with this kid, coming from a trauma background, we, we, we were like, okay, we're never going to touch her in, in disciplined ways. And then it turns out that doesn't work right. for her. She doesn't get it. And if you speak to her in any way, like, I, th I don't know if she's picking up on stress or if she's just, I don't know. Who knows in this kid's what? Like, she can't explain it to me, so I can't know where she's at on a given day. But I'll start talking to her and she'll just go blank and I'll see it and I'll be like, son of a bitch. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and so for her, the sort of the discipline of choice is two fingers to the forehead, like a flick. Mm -hmm. On the forehead, mm -hmm. because so that'll get her attention in a way that doesn't hurt her. But it's like, no, 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 you right here with me. Stay here with me. Don't go away. Yes, they definitely so recede. I never know. 
you know, I, I don't know when she's going to disappear. But then there's other times where, like, she'll she'll start hugging and she won't stop. And she has to be physically told to let go of people or, like, we've had to tell my... my so she's uh, 12 years younger than my oldest. Mm-hmm. And so that means we had teenagers in the house, right, coming over to visit or whatever when Danielle joined our household. And we'd have to, especially teenage girls, oh, she's this cute little blonde girl. Oh, how sweet she wants to give hugs. Oh, isn't this great? And now Danielle is all up in their grill for the rest of the night. Like, she will follow them around and snuggle up in their lap. And and we, I would have to pull these teenage girls aside and be like, I need you to say no to her. I know it's awkward. I know she's cute. But you need to teach her safe boundaries. Yes. Because she know, doesn't know any. I don't want it to sound like I'm... She doesn't know, and I don't want to sound like I'm disciplining either one of you here. But it's not okay for her to just talk to strangers. It's not okay for her to just hug strangers, and you were a stranger to her. Yes. And that's super awkward. It's super awkward. Yep. And having a child that's like that, um, especially as they get older, makes it difficult for life. And that's part of the reason, kind of rolling back to what we said a moment ago, where... I don't think that I could ever start over. Like if it happened, if something fell into my lap, if a niece or a nephew, you know, was suddenly in need, absolutely I'd probably take them because I'm super open-hearted and just fix everything. Um, But with my experience with my son for these last 18 and a half years, it's different. It's different. It's more difficult to be able to look at a quote-unquote normal child and not myself mentally revert back to, oh, shit, when's the other shoe going to drop? I'm, yeah, and, and I mean, and I worry about totally different things with her. You know, it... it all four of my kids are pretty resilient. And unfortunately, my oldest three are resilient because I got so sick in 2010. Mm-hmm. So my old, my, my oldest was 10. My, my next kiddo was five. And Isaac was a newborn when I got sick. And so they're resilient because they watched, they survived their mother surviving a big bad thing. Yeah. But it's a resilience that we think of as a positive way. A... Life can throw shit at them and they sort of absorb it and move on. You know, they, they can roll with things that are difficult. And so ultimately it's a positive. Like I would so much prefer they not have experienced that. But okay. Um, my little one is resilient. But it's in a... I don't know what she's absorbing and what's just never even giving in. Like what the shields have gone up for and she's just never even absorbed in the first place. So upsetting events don't seem to stay with her any more than they stay with the other kids. But I don't know that that's better. Yeah. I um, I wish I had advice there. But I don't because you don't know. Because they just – they glaze over. And like you said, they've gone poof. Uh, we, we used to call Ronnie's um, checking out. Okay, he's checked out of this conversation. He's done. Like, there's nothing that can be done to know what's being absorbed. Um, 
what the takeaway is, whether it's a positive or a negative situation or conversation. Um, I mean, here we are 18 years later. I finally have him to a point where if he doesn't want to talk about something, if something is bothering him, he will very angrily tell me, I just don't want to talk about it right now. I've finally gotten him to that point. That's a huge, we are nowhere near that with Danielle. Like, I just don't know. I I just, I just don't know. And I worry about different boundary things with her. Like, oh God, Willem got so mad at me. This was at the start of this year. Um, January, February, March in there somewhere. And Emily was rolling toward like the end of her freshman year of college mm-hmm. and was, she's doing really, really well. Uh, both like, I don't even know what her GPA is, but just in terms of like, you can tell she's home. She's found her thing because her, her junior year of high school, her math teacher told her, I don't think you can handle college. Um, I don't know if you can handle math like this. I, I like, I'm still like, I'm quite proud of not putting that woman in the hospital because don't you fucking say things like that to my kid, you know, but it was because Emily has profound ADHD. She has very like, and hers is the hyperactive type. She's a pain in the ass. And at that point, she was sort of just starting to learn more of her own coping skills, Mm -hmm. but you can't get a kid on an IEP individualized education plan in the school system until they show some sort of deficit and because emily is very smart she was functioning at like just below average grade wise not bad enough to be on an iep even though i knew she could do better and would feel better if she's you know and so i kept going in going like wouldn't you prefer the kid not to actually fuck up and the answer was yeah no apparently that's not what we would prefer and so it wasn't until the math teacher said that, um, that we finally got her on an IEP and suddenly her grades turned around and then she gets into college like magic. What do you know? Right. You know? Oh boy. And so, but so, so high school was really, really hard for him. Like all four years, the first three years were hard because she was not performing at the level she knew she could handle much less us. Like bear in mind, my husband's a college professor. Like I don't care whether my kid goes to college. I thought he was going to die. Like when the day that that happened and, you know, cause she's sitting at home going, I don't think I can go to college because my math teacher said so. And so I had to be like, okay, look, if you don't go to college, it's okay. It just means we're going to change around our priorities. We have to get you your license. We have to get you a part-time job. Like we have to learn some of these life skills that we've been putting aside to let you focus on schoolwork. And then my husband got home from work and I'm like, you straight upstairs. Don't say a word to her. Go. <laughs> because like you need to hear this from me and we need to practice how we're going to talk to the kids because he wasn't upset at her he was upset at the math teacher but kids absorb it you know and so i needed to let him un- unload on me before unloading on emily but so then the fourth year of college for her or of high school for her was difficult because she's trying to catch up and because suddenly now that she was given just a little bit extra suddenly she's succeeding and feeling good about herself and suddenly this is working and now she's resenting how hard things had been those first three years so she gets to college and she's doing well like right from the start she's doing well she's doing what she wants to do she's you know she's studying art she's getting her bachelor's in fine arts and loves it and so around march or so of this year we had 
sort of, you know, the, the way that you do like those unplanned state of the union talks yeah, with your partner, mm -hmm. you know, how, how each of the kids is doing. And, and it started with like how well she was doing in school and how, you know, we're proud of her and we were proud of the school and we we're proud of all of the things and proud, proud, proud and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Don't I sound proud, right? <laughs> um, but the... So then we're done with Emily, like, and, you know, and I made the comment, I think she had just turned 18 too, so that, or I guess not quite, but about, because I was like, cool, like one's off the plate, you know, like, I feel like we've succeeded, we've re made one reach adulthood, she's functional, she's doing well in school, we can keep helping her, but she is no longer my problem, cool. And then we talked about Jacob, and Jacob has always been more of an intellectual. He's, he runs anxious at times, but he does not have ADHD, and he's always like this observer. Like he really tends to think and, and watch the world around him a lot before he dives in. Mm -hmm. But that makes him a good studier, a good student in a lot of ways. And so we've always thought he's going to go to college and he's going to become a, like a teacher of some sort. Yeah. But that's going to be his strength. Okay, cool. Let's talk about the next kid. And Isaac also has ADHD, also a complete pain in the ass. And he's, at the time, he had, like was about to turn nine, give or take. And so I was like, look, this kid's got to be, you know, we got to keep him in sports. I don't know what else right now. He just, he needs to burn off this energy so that I don't, you know, toss him in a snowbank, every option. And then I could see it coming, you know, when you're having this conversation and you suddenly realize, like you had like this out of body moment and you realize, I know where about to, this conversation is about to go. And you're not going to like what I have to say. Uh-oh. And I really don't want to say it. Like, I don't want to say it. And he's like, and so and so my husband, who is an optimist and a sweet guy and so much nicer than I am. And he says, and what about Danielle? What about Danny? And I'm like, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> like, I don't want to. And ultimately, cause, because even with Isaac, even with the spastic and the sports and everything, we're like, we know how to deal with an ADHD kid. We can get him to college if he wants to go. Yeah. And then he's like, what about Danny? And I'm like, okay. Full honesty, if I can get her to 12 without having tried drugs and to 16 without engaging in sex work, I will consider that a major win. Yes. And this is both because of her diagnosis and because of her biological background. Mm -hmm. But that kids with reactive attachment are so about feelings, not emotions. How it feels in the moment, the stimulation, the feeling in this second is so much more important. And I don't even know if she has emotions, you know, the, the sort of glow of contentment or the grinding of anger that lasts. Like she gets happy, she gets sad, she gets mad. But in the in-between time, it's like there's blankness. There's an emotion there. Um, there's definitely an emotion underneath it all. And I completely understand exactly where you're coming from with that, with not really being able to identify the, basically the goal on where you want them to be. Like my proudest thing that I have in regards to my son is that he held on to his virginity and he held on to not drinking and not doing any kind of drugs at all, including marijuana until after he was 18. So that's a huge pride boost for me because I was terrified. I was terrified that he was going to do something 
majorly egregious that I couldn't kind of protect him from. Um, you know, I went, I did the chins route um, in Massachusetts. Chins is child in need of services. Um, you know, go to the courthouse and say, this kid's just not listening. He's breaking all the rules. Um, I need help. I have this diagnosis. I can't get the help. I can't, I don't have the access that I need to help this person. So I was able to, through the courts, unfortunately, but ultimately fortunately, to get him the help that he needed. He needed some very intense therapy that our insurance just simply didn't cover. Um, we needed respite care, you know, weekends where he could go to um, kind of like a camp, but it's a therapy camp where we could have a break and just kind of reconvene and reconnect. Um, uh, sadly, he did have an issue with fire. Uh, so he had to have an ASAP evaluation. I'm not sure what the acronym is on that, but it's very specific to Massachusetts and they use it in regards to kids who have fire setting tendencies and any kind of sexualized behaviors. And he landed in yeah, the it's moderate and sexual abuse protocol. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't remember that off the top of my head. Um, but he ended up in the moderate mm -hmm. level for for fires. So he ended up at a three-year program where he went through a full fire regime and some very, very, very intensive therapy programs. And, you know, I, I would tell him all the time, if you don't stop, if you don't start listening to your therapist, if you don't stop giving me a hard time, giving school a hard time, they're going to take you from me. And there's nothing I can do about it. All you have to do is listen. Listen when I talk, you know, just do the small things I'm asking you to do. And he pushed and pushed and pushed. And I was a liar. I was a liar and that wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to take him away. Well, he went to the program and they took him away. And he displaced that. It was not my fault. I was the one that did paperwork. I was the one that went to the court. I was the one that pushed for him to get the help. He blamed my husband. It took about two years of him being at the program for him to realize that it wasn't my husband's fault, that it was his own, and that it would have been easier for him. But at the same time, despite the fact that he still resents going to the program, he still resents the some of the experiences he had with the people that were there. He knows that that's what's made him be able to function. Because he wasn't functioning before. He was not functioning before. He had an issue with fire and he, had a, he still has an, an issue with electronics, but it's much better than it was. He was stealing and just... So I understand... Well, all the of the things goals. because they feel good in that second. Yes. You know, they, they in that, that impulse, it's not just like impulsively blurting something out. It's about, there's a whole body, like, all, uh, I don't know about all of us, but all of us in my house love to sit around a fire. Mm -hmm. 
You know, we, we, we own a little fire bowl that even in our backyard in Salem, which is like this big, we still love to set a fire and sit around it. And, you know, and every every New Year's Eve, we, we, we try to have a, where we, we have a fire and we write down on pieces of paper, like, so that you burn up your regrets from the year and you send up your hopes for the next year, right? Like little things like that. Like we, so fire has a role in our family. So like, I, I just feel like, there's a lot of people don't understand that it can tip over into pyromania and arson because everybody's in the same way, I guess, comparably to like, if I tell people I have dental phobia, they're like, oh, I'm afraid of the dentist too. And I'm like, have you ever punched a dental assistant? <laughs> like by accident? Right. Have you ever tipped over the tray of weaponry in the room because you were so desperate to get out of that chair? Then let's not pretend we have the same thing. Right. right. It, like, I'm not proud of it. It just is what it is. It tips very quickly. Like, it started with just backyard fires, like, as a family. And it very quickly mm -hmm. turned into him stealing and hiding the books of matches and the lighters and just the thrill. Um, and and that's what I don't think people understand is that we like fire and, like, liking the thing is one thing. But then that full body thrill that I think that they experience is, is a way of balancing out the blank times in between. Like they, their feelings are so much stronger than their emotions. And that that feeling is such a, a draw, like just touch me, feel, you know, mm -hmm. reach me in some way. And, and that's like, I look at my daughter who has experienced sexual trauma. And, and I mean, this is, she moved into my house when she was just over two years old. So to have already experienced sexual trauma at that age, right? That is how affection works in her world. That is how self-worth works in her world. And, and that if she is cute enough and pretty enough, people will like her. And we, you know, you can say all you want, like, look, no, a real princess is smart and kind and brave. And you can see her nodding along and meanwhile thinking, bullshit, a real princess is really pretty. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and she acts differently to men than to women. Like, even my husband and I, like, she, she gets this, like, flirty, cutesy way of behaving around my husband that is different. Like, for me, she acts like I'm going to take a bat to her once a week, whether she needs it or not. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. A lot to unpack there. But that I think that the feelings and that impulse and so drugs and sex mean something different for kids with reactive attachment disorder than they mean for kids that don't experience this. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it is scary. Like, like I don't have the sexual morality concept of like, you should remain a virgin in the, in the, like for religion isn't a thing for me, but also just like a, a general morality thing. Like I look at my other kids and I'm like, look, I'd rather you not have sex now, but I, through your teens, if that's what you're going to do, please be safe. Please come talk to me. Please be careful. Yes. But with her, I'm like, please don't have sex until you're 30. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I hear you. Completely there. Um, with, uh, yeah, I. that's that's tough. That's tough. Um, I can empathize with the splitting between your husband and yourself with her completely because uh 
when I was with their father, it was, I was, I was abused. Well, Ronnie and I were both abused, but we were abused differently. And Ronnie grew up for the first five years of his life. Women are to be manipulated. Women are to be disrespected. The women are to be meat. So if he had a woman provider, he turned on that charm. He turned on that charm and he could make that woman believe that the sky was green. If he had a male, he refused to speak. Because he knew that a male could see right through him. So I, I completely empathize there with the trauma mm-hmm. background. And I mean, we, we did, I mean, in our case, because we didn't have Danielle from day one and there was a lot of back and forth about, like, we tried really hard not to adopt. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she, we got a call sort of requesting help in the middle of the night. Oh, can you take the baby so that I can check myself into a psych hospital? Which was like, of course. Like, of course we would. Mm-hmm. It turns out her family had said no. Um, but, so that's why she called us. is because she knew that we would say, of course. And the mother remained with us for four months. And it wasn't until the, the morning after the mother checked herself into the psych hospital that we learned about some of the stuff that Danielle had experienced as an infant and as a, as a toddler. And... So just this whole complicated situation and we didn't want to adopt. Like we weren't looking for that. We were, I had already gone, gotten sick by then. I was still barely on my feet. I had actually just broken my back about three or four months prior. So I'm like, I don't need a toddler in the house. Like, mm-mm. <laughs> you know, but what are you going to do? Especially very early on, it became apparent that there's something wrong. And I am familiar with what reactive attachment is clinically speaking. And so I knew what a mimic she would be. I knew that she would know how to act like everything's fine right up until the moment that everything is very, very, very not fine. Mm -hmm. And that she needed to be in a house that was going to provide a shitload of structure and was going to call her on a bullshit. And a lot of foster families just aren't going to be able to do that because all the kids are traumatized. You know what I mean? And so that's how they all get bounced. Here we are. Yeah. And, and so because of that, like, I think my husband had a sense of, we will adopt, this will fix things. Mm -hmm. And he also had a sense of kids are not capable of lying and manipulating in to the degree that she is because most kids aren't right. Like most kids, you know, when they're lying, Mm mm-hmm. Because kids are terrible liars. Mm-hmm. Their ears turn red. <laughs> like you catch they them. smile. Them, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. Like, yeah, that kind of, exactly. Or they just look at you when they're doing something wrong. And you can feel those little eyes burning into the side of your skull. And you're like, knock it off. And they're like, how'd you know? Right? Mm-hmm. It, it's because they got too quiet. And they were staring at you. And so you knew better. And for her, she can she can lie. But, I, but it, and not in a creative way. Just in an evasive way like a, a manipulating a, re, a reality but not in a fun way she cannot play dress up she doesn't understand yeah the concept of dress up she doesn't understand the concept of play with dolls like doesn't make any sense to her at all that just um, makes me sad and like right but so my husband felt like 
now that she is in a home with a psychologist and a college professor, right? We are wildly overeducated for life. And so we'll figure it out. It'll be fine, right? And she acted happy around him, and so he thought she was happy. Meanwhile, I'm home with her during the days going, this kid is going to send me over the edge. She would have these tantrums. I literally, <laughs> I used to make her go sit on my front porch. Like, you are not allowed to scream at me like this. You go sit on the porch until you are done screaming. And this kid could scream for half an hour. Mm-hmm. And I'd open the door and I'd be like, are you done? Because, by the way, we live in Massachusetts, right? It's cold outside. And I'd be like, are you done? And she'd be like, no. I'd be like, okay. Like, you can come in as soon as all you have to do is stop screaming and you can come inside. And I am shocked my neighbors never called the police on us because this kid would sit on the porch and scream for a half an hour straight or longer. Yes. And my husband was like, I don't know why she acts like that way for you. Like, she never does that for me. And I finally was like, she's flirting with you. Mm-hmm. Which is horrific. It is. But that's what it was. Because that's what she knew. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's something. It's terrible is what it is. And she will likely be in a better place through the years. Um, Just got to find the trick. I never found the trick with my son. Well, we're, you know, we're getting bits and pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because there's, you know... I don't think she was born with any tendency toward this. I think that it was, I think there's some, some kernel of it in her head that, that is sort of finding her way back to herself, but I don't think she's also going to find normal. Do you know what I mean? And because my kids were older than her, she's the youngest in the family. And because my husband and I are, are her parents now. You know, she has no contact with her biological family at all. Mm-hmm. So there's no, like, she had one major transition and that was it. Yeah. So I feel like that's all to her benefit. Like, and she sees other kids in the family not get away with the shit she's trying to get away with. And so. I mean, on, only time will I don't tell. Know. Really. Uh, with yeah. any kid. With any kid. But most especially with rad kids. Um only time yeah. can tell you exactly which direction they're going to end up going because I was in a similar kind of mindset. Yes, Ronnie is my biological child. Um, for the first five years, my ex, my father, and my stepmother psychologically took him from me. That's how he has Rad. So despite the fact that mm-hmm. I was present, he was not allowed to attach to me. Um. Which, that's still pretty tough, but it's just my reality, and I've learned to to grow with it. I've learned to deal with it. Um, Lots of therapy. Lots and lots and lots of therapy on that one. Um, So it's really, it's time. You will find the the niches and the what works and what doesn't. Um, And I kind of lost the direction I was going to go with this. But rad kids are tough because they can adapt really quickly and oh that's where I was going Ronnie had um we had a lot of moves in the first five and a half to six years of his life 
And then once I met Mike and I finally was divorced and we moved to New Hampshire, it was the one move. And then we were there for three years, I believe. And then we bought this house and we've been here ever since. So I thought, okay, great stability, you know, same school district, you know, get him into the good doctors, get him what he needs. And it, the stability for him, my experience made it worse. He went from stealing and hoarding food to the knives and the matches and the lighters and setting in the fires um, and stealing money and electronics and just, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant. But I know at the end of the day that I did what I knew to be right in the moment and that he is actually doing pretty damn good. He's doing pretty damn good where he's at. You know, he's been making decent decisions as an adult. You know, he made the decision to go through Job Corps. He's been there since February, I believe. No, just after his birthday in March. April was when he went. Um, so he's he's... It's tough. And once a week I get the phone call where he rants and raves and yells and curses at me. And, you know, this 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 professor is a dick and my instructor in shop is a complete asshole and my friends don't like me and my stuff's going missing and all this other stuff. And he, at the end of it, he's like, I'm so sorry that this call turned into another vent session. I said, kid, that's what I'm here for. So he... It definitely takes a community, but it's hard to find your community when you have kids that are like this. Well, especially because a lot of people, first of all, they, they, they view the kid on the surface, mm -hmm. right? And so they see a smiling kid, they think the kid's happy. They see a kid who's having a tantrum and they think, oh, well, here's what you have to do. Like, I know discipline. And usually that person doesn't have any children, <laughs> you know, because the best parents in the world are those without any kids. Um, so that's always fun. But also, like, with a lot of psychiatric challenges, you can't see it. You know, like, if my kid was... So, okay, one of the things that I describe about Danielle is to say to people, she doesn't have an imagination. She can lie. And she can make shit up. But she doesn't have an imagination. She doesn't have insight. And the number of people who are like, oh, that'll get better. It'll get better when she's older. And I'm like, how do you fucking know? <laughs> I don't know whether it's going to get better. How do you know it's going to get better? Yeah. It's infuriating. Not because I'm mad at them, but just because I feel like you just further alienated me because now you're, you're both not getting where I'm at and you're invalidating my response. I've certainly been there. I have been judged on many things as a parent. Uh, my age is the biggest one. But the second one is the way that I was viewed as disciplining my child. Both of my children are kind of trained like dogs. One snap of the fingers and they know they need to stop what they're doing. Two snaps of the fingers, they know they're in trouble and they better come get me now. Like come to me now. A lot of people did not like that. Um, I lost uh, a good majority of my connections with my siblings and my mother, who wasn't really connected to me to begin with. Um, 
because they saw me as too harsh. You know, screen limits was too harsh. Um, not allowing him to have a second cookie was too harsh. Um, just you have to set those firm boundaries with everyone. I had to set boundaries with school, with the professionals there. I had to set boundaries with the friends. I had to set boundaries with my friends, uh, my family, and it becomes very alienating. But I learned to survive. I'm sorry. I'm not like tearing up. I, I need to take a sip of water. Um, you learn to survive and you learn to educate and advocate. And that's, that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's that's both a you're tapping into both the these are the needs of this particular kid. And I'm going to parent however my particular kid needs to be parented in that moment. And I started becoming a parent as did you back before parent was a verb. <laughs> right. Where you just it's something you were. It's not something you did. Yes. And right around that time, suddenly in, parenting became this like earthy, crunchy, like. Well, I want my kid to like me. And I'm like, fuck that. Like, even at 22, I'm like, I don't want my kid to like me. I want my kid to listen to me. Yeah. I want my kid to fear me a little bit, but not really know why. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't want them to, to be afraid that I'm going to hurt them. I just want them to know that, like, the last thing you want to do on earth is piss mom off. And, like, that's where Emily's at right now. So I'm like, cool, one done. You know? <laughs> like, they get it. I think that like, don't just don't fuck with mom. We don't know why, but don't fuck with mom. And they do behave better for me. Like my husband is nicer than I am. They give him more shit than they give me. I, I'm, I'm okay with that because I benefit. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, but the number of other mommies at the sidelines of the sports games or at the schools. Like I don't go, I don't do PTO because fuck that. But Oh, I hate PTO at the school events. I can't, I can't No, Um, I swear too much. Um, but the number of other mommies that I come across in my life who they want, I just want them to like me. I just, you know, and they won't quite say I want, although they will, I guess, now that I think about it, a lot of them will say like, oh, my, my, my six-year-old is my best friend. And I'm like, get a fucking life. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Get a fucking life. They're six. Yeah. Like, they don't need that kind of pressure. They need mom to show them some competence. Mm Mm-hmm. And some protection in the world and some some role modeling. You've got the rest of their lives to be their friend. Although I still reserve the right to yell at Emily now. Like, oh, yeah. You know, I'm her mom. I get to yell at her for the rest of my life if I want to. It's okay. But that now she and I are approximating friendship. Mm -hmm. But it's different. Yeah. Like saying or, or putting your child in a position, especially as young as six, is the recipe for the new term that I've learned, um, thanks to the oldest, oldest, uh, is parentification of the child. Mm-hmm. And that is a mm-hmm. Yeah, putting scary the kid thing. in the role of being mom. It's not good. It's not good. Like, so when, when the biological mother of our youngest went to the hospital, in Massachusetts... For your first psychiatric admission, the typical length of stay is three days, Mm -hmm. like an average length of stay. Almost never less than two, almost never more than four, just for your first go through. 
She was there for 10 days. Oh, the full That's 10. a long span. Like, she was, she was, it was a long, it was a long stretch. And even when she came out, like, she was, she was, now, I don't believe that she was there truly so much for depression as for just running out of coping mechanisms altogether. Um, I believe that there's uh, borderline personality disorder as well as substance abuse and some impulsivity, although not necessarily ADHD, in her family. And, and I, so I think all of that is kind of mixed up in Danielle's DNA as well. But so she had a lot to sort out before she was safe to leave. And I drove her home from from the hospital. We, we lucked out and were able to get her into um, the next closest psychiatric facility. Like there's one about a quarter mile from my house mm-hmm. and there was no beds there. But there's another that's about three miles away. And we were able to get her there, which in Massachusetts, when you are psychiatrically admitted, you can be placed anywhere in the state that there's a bed. Oh, I know. So, you know, it's quite possible that she could have gotten placed, you know, on the other side of the state and there's nothing we can do. So we were lucky enough that she was close by. So I was able to visit her every day and that kind of thing. And as I'm driving her home, I'm like, look, it's a short drive. So we have... What I have one thing I need you to absorb right now is that things have been going okay. Now, it, there were certain things that bothered me that I was seeing in her child in that week and a half already. Mm-hmm. That um, some sexualized behaviors, some like I asked her a question and she literally ducked and covered because she didn't know how to cope with questions. No one had ever asked her a question before and she just couldn't with that. Um, she started calling me mom on like the second day. And to me, mom is one of those words that's like sacred. Yes, it is. You know, and I've kind of let go on that to some, like some of Emily's, some of my oldest kids' friends call me mom. Mm-hmm. And I understand why they need to do that. And I would rather them have somebody to call mom than nobody. So like, I've let go of that. But I would be appalled if any of my kids called someone else mom. I'm right there with you on all of that. So I'd seen all of these things start to happen. And so I'm driving her home and I said to her, listen, I know how tiring, like she'd never been in the hospital more than like overnight to give birth before. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, look, even if you were in, had been in the hospital for gallbladder, pneumonia, broken bone, whatever, being in the hospital is fucking exhausting. Even if all you just did was sleep for 10 days straight. It's exhausting. And so you're going to get home. You're going to have a spurt of energy for the first, like, I don't know, 20 minutes. And then you're going to need to crash. That's okay. I got this. Here's what I need you to do is I need you to look at your kid. I need you to say hi, call her by name, tell her you love her and tell her that you got this. That that's, that's the only message you need to give to your kid right now is I got this. Even if you don't like this is a time where it's okay to lie to your kids. It's a lot of times where I lie to my kids. But the biggest one is the times where you fake competence because kids need to look at mom and think, if shit hits my fan, mom can get me through it. Yes. And ultimately, when she couldn't do that, and when she couldn't do it the next day or the next day or the next month, that's when I knew this woman cannot be a mother. And I mean, she ultimately made that decision herself. Like I didn't pressure her in that sense Mm -hmm. in fact we worked really really hard to try to get her built up to the point where she could be 
and she just wasn't there. Ultimately, she made the decision. I'm not going to get better. You keep her. And um, that was his own horrible, horrible story and horrible moment. But that I was like, that is the one thing that I feel like at the end of the day, if you want to boil down to me, like the most important thing a parent does, it's to look at their kid and be like, look, I got this. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm doing a horrifically unpleasant thing, even if your behavior is off the charts, even if I have to take you to court because I can't actually contain your behavior, I got the next level. Mm-hmm. I got this. Yep. Because when I did the the court thing, you know, even walking out, you know, he was hugging me and he was crying. and He was like, we will get through this. I will always be here. We will get through this. And he still remembers those words. You know, I was a complete basket case. I did not want to have to do what I did. And I still, I I hear you. And that is, that is rough. That is rough. I think that's the hardest, to me, like the, the hardest thing about being a parent. And then I look at these people who avoid that. By trying to be their kids' friends all the time and try, trying to be nice. I want my kid to think I'm nice. And I'm like, nice doesn't get shit done. No, it doesn't. Nope. You know, and that's what your kid needs to see is that you're going to get shit done. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you had, you, you broke your back, but you obviously you've gotten through it and you've still done everything that you need to do. Um, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I don't agree with this diagnosis, but it seriously knocked me on my ass. They put me on a ton of meds, and I was not functioning. And there were moments where I didn't have things together. But I still got up. I still did what I needed to do. Um, I don't remember half of it because now the meds that they had me on messed with my memory. Um, So... you have to stay strong for the people who don't necessarily know what strength is yet. And that's part of maturity that a lot of people, especially a lot of people my age, don't necessarily have or haven't had the experiences in order to see that greater picture in themselves. Does that make sense? Uh, no, it completely does. And that you you have to stay strong even when you don't feel it. Maybe more so mm-hmm. when you don't feel it. Mm-hmm. Because that's when the kids most need to see, I got this. Absolutely. Like, even when you know you're lying to your kids. Because it's totally okay to lie to kids. Like, I do it all the time. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know we don't have any cookies. Of course we do. I just have them hidden away. You know? <laughs> but <laughs> but more, more just that... There are times where I've looked at my kids like, we'll figure this out. And I'm like, I don't know how. I don't know how we're going to figure this out. I don't know how we're going to get through this. But that's what you have to do. And you have to be convincing at it. Yeah. And that's that's hard. There's there's no other word beyond that. That's, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to experience. And it's a hard thing to try to push through. Is trying to figure it out. All while keeping that strong presence and that 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 determined face and in the back of your mind you're going i don't know what i'm doing 
and then you, you know. <laughs> right? Nobody, nobody gave you a man gave me a manual for this shit. Like, <laughs> you know, I sneaking off into the into the bathroom, pretending to use it so I can Google something, so I have like some kind of even tiniest idea of which direction to go in. And I think that's probably some of the hardest things I've ever had to do is just trying to educate myself in what needs to be done and then dealing with the emotional fallout of some of those things that need to be done. Well, and it's there's a there's a weird cycle to parenting wherein some of the hardest things I've done have to do with parenting. You know, when looking at my kids, knowing some awful thing that they're going to have to, you know, even when it's as simple as looking at my daughter going like, gay is harder than not gay. Like it shouldn't be. And I think we're getting there, but it's harder than not gay. And I am sorry that you're going to have a harder life. We'll protect you and we'll get through this, but you need to know that. You know, in the same way that not, you know, that any other deviation from norm is harder than being normal. Right. It's just harder. It doesn't mean you can't do it. And I would rather we talk about it and get through it because nobody is normal in all possible measures. But it's harder. And so some of the hardest things, you know, the things that I've lost sleep over are the, the moments where I've been like, shit, like... I, 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 I don't actually have this, you know, and, and, and that's where I feel like the biggest failure. That's where I feel like the biggest, like, I don't feel like I need to protect my kids, but I feel like I need to be able to provide them with tools that sometimes I don't have. And so I don't know how to give them the tool when I don't even have it myself. On the flip side, I am absolutely positive that if I did not have children, I wouldn't still be alive. You know, that, that there are times where I have picked myself up from real bad mental places or really sick physical places because I had to, because my kids needed me to. And so I'm not saying that everybody who breaks and dies and can't survive it is a failure. That's not the case. I'm just saying that for me, at the end of the day, if I need a reason to keep pushing, that's my reason. Yes. I I do. I have said that in the past actually to many a people um it just many people and you know if i did not have these two children that relied on me for a multitude of things not just food and housing and clothes but you know emotional support mental support um you know decision making um you know just to if they, they, they didn't even rely as on simple me. as they need to see, like they need to see you get pissed off because that makes them feel important. Yes. Do you know what I mean? As backwards as that sounds like they need to see like, look, the reason I'm so fucking mad at you right now is because you matter to me. Shut up and go away. Like, <laughs> like yeah. you need to be able to communicate that to your kids. Usually I don't say fuck that much to the kids, although they're used to me by now. So <laughs> that's fine. Oh, it's raising kids is rough. It is rough and that, that that's, you know, sometimes it's at the same time where, like I said, we're like having the child is what made me so broken in the first place. And yet having kids 
is the reason I got up again and tried one more time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I cannot envision a single day where I haven't gone into a really bad mental space because of whatever's going on health-wise. Whether it's, you know, my physical or my mental, I, I cannot think of a single day that I haven't thought something really, really, really bad. And then I look at the wall and I see the collage of pictures or I look across the table and I see my child sitting there, you know, reading a book or scrolling through Discord. Um, and that's that pulls me right out of it. Like it's an instant reality check. And I need that. And sometimes I'll just give them a hug just because I need it. And they'll say, you know, hey, Mom, what's up? You okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I just, uh, I just needed to hug you for a moment. You know, it's like a silent thank you. Because if it wasn't for them, where would I be? I'm going to step back out of conversation mode for a minute and just sort of talk through some of the common symptoms that you might see in reactive attachment disorder to try and demonstrate what I meant early on when I mentioned that it's kind of like autism in some ways. Because when you're diagnosing mental and behavioral disorders, you don't get a blood test. You you observe and you hope that you're making the right observations at the right times. So kids with reactive attachment disorder, if it starts up right in infancy, right away, you can get babies who avoid eye contact, don't smile or smile very late. They don't respond to efforts to be soothed. Uh, they don't seem to notice if they're left alone. They might cry inconsolably. They don't talk to themselves like babies do. They don't coo or whatever. They don't watch you walk around the room, especially if they're focused on something else. They don't even want to play with interactive games or toys. But they do often rock or self-stimulate. It's called stimming. Um, the repetitive movements that some children will do. Then as they get a little bit older, you know, late toddlerhood in or into sort of no longer baby childhood, they can show an inappropriate response to touch and physical affection, sometimes like an aversion to it, and sometimes uh, like being overly needy and overly physical. They often have control issues. So what can kids control? Like sometimes they'll be disobedient and defiant, but other times they'll just sort of retreat within themselves in a, in a real intense, like finger snap sort of way. They 
may have anger problems, uh, meaning both that they may have more anger than your average kid and also that they may not know how to express it. So you may get a child who's, you know, unusually manipulative or passive aggressive or has tantrums well past what would be considered age appropriate. Um, they may try to hide their anger, but then they'll give a high five so hard that it'll hurt or they'll hug somebody too hard. And it's hard to really know whether they recognize that they are causing hurt. They don't know how to show a genuine care and affection. So they may be inappropriately affectionate with strangers without, you know, proportionate affection towards their parents. They have basically no conscience or appear to anyway. They don't show guilt or regret or remorse after they behave badly so that as soon as you put them in timeout and turn your back, they're fine. Whereas other kids are likely to cry or stay angry for a little while. So do you see how this is tough to, to define even, but to diagnose in the first place? Because this sounds a whole lot like autism. An awful lot of those behaviors are, on paper, identical. It has a different feel when you're around a child with autism versus a child with reactive attachment disorder, but it's really hard to articulate. And trust me, I've tried. And then, like, if that's not complicated enough, there's two types of reactive attachment disorder. And to me, they've always felt like they were named backwards, but I don't know. Nobody asked me. So the inhibited type, the, the, the child tends to be uh, at first glance, very withdrawn, like emotionally detached and like resistant to the, com to comfort if they're upset, that sort of thing. Um, but not in a ADHD hyper inward focused kind of way, more like they're paying attention to everything that's going on around them. They just refuse like up years. You cannot make me feel better. Motherfucker, that kind of thing. But then if someone tries to physically comfort them, kids with inhibited type are likely to push other people away, um, sometimes get aggressive, they'll punch you, they'll kick instead of hugging back, that kind of thing. Whereas disinhibited is the child who doesn't really seem to notice or understand or grok the difference between their parents over other people. So these are kids who don't ever have separation anxiety or stranger anxiety when they're babies and toddlers, and they'll seek attention and affection from, like, anybody. And they, you know, that, that can be very dangerous, right? Not, not so much stranger danger, blah, blah, blah. I'll do an episode on that another time. It's not really a thing, and I'm going to let it go. Okay, fine. But 
kids with reactive <laughs> with reactive attachment disorder disinhibited type they are they act very dependent they act much younger than their age they may put on a show of being anxious but all in like this way of hug me more hug me more and they'll touch inappropriately um, not necessarily sexually, but just inappropriately. Like there are times and places where they need to keep their hands to themselves. Um, and, and they just, they don't stop hugging until you tell them to. So to me, like, I understand that when they say inhibited reactive attachment disorder, they mean the child appears inhibited at rest, inhibited from forming or showing attachment when they are calm and that when they act out they don't appear inhibited anymore so i get the nomenclature it just i feel like they could have maybe chosen clearer words anyway i just i felt like it couldn't hurt to give a quick little primer on what the books say and also to point out like do you see what I mean? How hard all of this is? Like, I, we've had Danielle in our home since uh, the, the winter of 2014. And so, uh, five years now, a, a little bit more. And I still have a hard time describing her personality. And I still have a hard time identifying her needs in advance. And, and just knowing what she's thinking, like, and what she likes and just the things that you want to be able to do for your kid. It's a challenge. And if it's a challenge for me, then it's got to be infinitely more challenging for her. Didn't you feel better before you knew that? Jen, thank you so much for opening up to me and trusting me with your story and letting me disrupt your family's evening because we know there was a lot going on in your house that night. And just, it helps. It helps to talk it through. Not because I feel like I want anybody else to have the same struggles that I do because they're struggles and so not all that fun, but because at least since struggles are sort of inherent to life at least we're not alone with it thank you guys for listening i am still i think not fully over the pneumonia i guess i don't know what it is but i'm super fatigued all the time and sleeping a lot and so i'm doing what i can to try and churn out episodes but i just I, whatever it's not a guilt thing i'm just saying like i'll be back soon i know what i'm playing next it'll be a light-hearted sort of fun thing um so hopefully i can get that out in the next day or two and until then stay sane yeah my son went from never cursing around us at all to every other word is fuck shit fuck shit and i'm like can can you just just, you know, one less, one less a sentence would be nice. Not asking for much here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, Mom, really? All right. I had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> right? I know when my battle's like, that's lost. That's what moms do. We ask. <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The art world and the entertainment industry collided this week when the identity of the elusive street artist called the new Banksy was finally revealed, posing in plain sight as a wannabe actress, dog walker, and waitress, or Carlotta Botox as she is known. So, where in the world is Carlotta Botox? Come out, come out, wherever you are. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.